Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our podcast today. We are going to be looking at the parable of the rich fool. And it comes from Luke 12, verses 13 through 21. So, Alan, take it away. Thanks, Christy. Yeah, our gospel lesson for this week is interesting in that, you know, we think of it as the rich fool and we think we're, we're familiar with it. But I think we have to set it in the context of Luke's journey to Jerusalem narrative because um, there are these themes that Luke just weaves together sort of subtly. Um, in, in a way, and sometimes more explicitly. But uh, here we have, I think, behind this passage, uh, a criticism of the Jewish re- religious mm-hmm. leaders' attitudes, and especially towards wealth. And so this passage brings into sharper focus another theme of this section of Luke, and that is the danger that wealth poses against a faith informed by the kingdom of God and uh, by the assurance of God's generosity, and both are both of which the kingdom and 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 you know the, what we saw when we looked at the the, the prayer passage and the Lord's prayer, mm-hmm. um, those kinds of views about God are meant to shape one's life in the Christian community, mm-hmm. as we saw then, and and this this carries those themes. I mean, I, you know, I think mm-hmm. Luke is crafting this this whole narrative in a way that. All of all that he's built is 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 sort of subtly woven into what mm-hmm. he's doing here. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, now, is this this is unique to Luke? Yes. Um, what 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 do we know about it? Well, it is unique to Luke in the canonical gospel tradition. The Matthew, Mark, and John don't have anything like this, um, but there are versions of both the dialogue with the man regarding his inheritance and the parables that follows in the Gospel of Thomas. Mm. Um, now, as I've said before, I don't believe that the Gospel of Thomas predates the canonical gospels. Um, there are a lot of people who want to treat God, the Gospel of Thomas as if it were a documentary version of Q that to the early, uh, like the middle of the second of the first century, um, but one of the biggest arguments against that is we don't really have uh, manuscript evidence of, of the Gospel of Thomas until like the third or fourth century. And, um, you know, some might say, well, what about the manuscript evidence for the New Testament? We have manuscript evidence for the New Testament that goes into the second century, and Mm -hmm. some would even say very early into the second century. Right, right. But here's what we can take away. Here's the takeaway from Thomas, and that is it shows the relative stability of the gospel Mm -hmm. tradition, even outside mainstream circles of the early Christian community. Mm -hmm. These two passages, like most of the um, sayings of Jesus that are found in the Gospel of Thomas, are, are altered a bit from what we find in in the canonical gospel mm-hmm. tradition but the fact that you know they are there right. shows the stability of the yeah. of the gospel tradition yeah interesting yeah and so um putting it in the, to the context a little bit more than um um with how it how it appears i mean we obviously we've put it into the background of this coming to jerusalem but but more specifically yeah more specifically you know we're skipping over a number of uh, uh, quite a bit of material from from our last podcast that's true we did, did our- and 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 basically most of that is concerned with uh, you know sort of setting the backdrop of conflict with jewish leaders um, jesus rebukes them in luke chapter 11 verses 14 through 23 for accusing him of casting out demons by satan's power we saw that that sort of Luke puts that at episode here, and Mark puts it in the Galilean ministry. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus rebukes those who seek signs and warns that none will be given in Luke eleven twenty nine through mm-hmm. thirty two. At a dinner with the Pharisees and scribes, at a dinner, <laughs> he pronounces all these woes against them for their hypocrisy and mm-hmm. disobedience. And so, this is sort of Luke's version of Matthew chapter twenty three, mm-hmm. which is found in the final week of Jesus' life. Okay. Um, and it's a much shorter version, and and I think the the sort of the essence of the criticism that Jesus makes against them is you tithe mint and rue and herbs of all kind and neglect mm-hmm. justice and the love of God. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, this is Matthew's version. Uh, this, I mean, this is Luke's version of what Matthew says that you neglect the weightier matters of the law. Right. 
So at the outset then of Luke 12 of this chapter, Jesus warns his disciples explicitly against the Jewish leader's hypocrisy. He says in verse 12, in chapter 12, verse 1, beware the yeast of the Pharisees, that is their hypocrisy, mm-hmm. and then goes on to urge the disciples to face the dangers of their discipleship with the same kind of confidence in God's faithfulness and love that he encouraged them to approach in prayer mm-hmm. in the passage that we mm-hmm. saw last mm-hmm. week. So then in this context, you know, we, we, we have this request that comes in, yes. and it just seems to intrude on Jesus' instructions. And the, the request itself really seems, sounds more like a demand. And it kind of implies that this person hasn't really been paying attention to Jesus. Yeah, it, it really, when I, when I read it, it just is like, he doesn't get it. It's yeah. like, what? Right? Really? Right. Why are you asking Jesus this question? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And and so Luke tells us someone in the crowd said to him, "Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me." And one of the things we see in this is that throughout this section of Luke's gospel, we have this alternation between the disciples and the crowd as Jesus audience, at least as the the ones whom Luke names as Jesus audience in this part of Luke's gospel. Um I think it's pretty apparent, and others would say this as well, that we should understand that both groups are present pretty much throughout the whole thing. And while Jesus may address one or the other directly, both groups would have heard him. Mm-hmm. So um, when Jesus is addressing the disciples, there are people in the crowds who are there hearing it and vice versa. When Jesus is addressing the crowd, obviously his disciples are there. So one of the things I think we should understand about this request or this demand on the part of this man is that it may reflect a situation in which a younger brother has been denied his share of the family inheritance by an older brother who would, of course, gain the controlling interest. Mm-hmm. And I would say it's likely that a great deal of this inheritance probably consisted of right, land, of which may explain the reluctance to divide it. So Jesus' initial response challenges the man's view of him. Friend, who set me to be a judge or arbitrator over you? And and really, mm-hmm. the man's view of Jesus is much too conventional. He right. has he has too low of an understanding of who right. Jesus is. Right. You know, he does not take adequate account of the fact that Jesus is the Son of Man who acts with God's authority and brings the kingdom of God to the people, inaugurating the year of the Lord's favor. Right. right? And right. so, um, his his whole approach to Jesus is totally and, inadequate. And he hasn't learned. He hasn't. No. He hasn't listened or learned. No. Calvin actually addresses this, and and Calvin says Calvin's take on it is that um, he he comes to thinking of Jesus as the Jewish would have thought of the Messiah mm, yeah so you know and I I might see that, but really, a judge or an arbiter was a was a low uh, functionary. Was a lower function. I know. Yeah, a low functionary sure in the fair. Jewish world. Yeah, I'm not sure that's as good. But yeah. it, it, in other words, no matter. If, if you bought it to Calvin or, or what you argued there, it's clear that this guy doesn't get it. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't get who Jesus is. That's right. That's right. That's, that's the main point. Now, you know, again, while this question of an inheritance may seem to intrude on Jesus' previous instructions regarding faithful discipleship and avoiding the errors of the Jewish religious leaders, in Luke's gospel, Jesus kind of pivots and returns to his instructions regarding mm-hmm. faithful discipleship. So he uses this as an opportunity right. to move forward to uh, to basically, he, he takes this request and turns it into a warning um, in verse 15, take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Mm-hmm. And so this is going to be a very important uh, mm-hmm. theme in this section of Luke's gospel. Now, while the subject of the parable is a man whose sole focus in life is on his possessions, it's important to note that Jesus warns against all kinds of greed. Mm -hmm. And that refers not only to material possessions, but also it can refer to simply the ambition to gain a certain social standing that would come with the possession of wealth, whether it consisted of land or other forms of wealth. Right, right. And so I think that, you know, this is meant to be an all-inclusive kind of warning. Right, right. And I think there's a tendency to look at this as a kind of just a, a physical wealth kind of mm-hmm. thing but it, it it isn't just that no. and and i think when you see it that way then it doesn't make actually just the physical wealth in itself as evil if you will it's what it's what all comes with it well before we before we get through with luke's gospel we're going to hear jesus speaking very harshly we, we hear the we hear right. some of jesus most harsh statements about wealth 
in right, this section right. of Luke's gospel. Right. In fact, he will say, you cannot be my disciple unless you give away all your possessions. Right. So, so. <laughs> we're, we're going we're gonna to run into that, and it's, this is going to be a theme in Luke's gospel. Okay. It's going to be something that's going to challenge us. Yeah. yeah. Okay, moving on. So then the statement that one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions, I think functions as a kind of thematic statement or a, almost a foundational statement in Luke's gospel. Because as I said before, uh, Luke will return to this theme again and again in his narrative of the journey to Jerusalem. Several of the parables we're going to see are going to deal with this very issue. Mm-hmm. And here, life, and the word is zoe, refers to both the totality of one's human existence, and it's interesting that zoe a, you know, a lot of a lot of interpreters will read this passage together with next week's passage, which is the one about not worrying about what you eat or what mm-hmm. you wear. And so, in connection with this passage, uh, life Zoe is referred to. Um, the man speaks to himself and calls himself soul or suke uh, in verse nineteen, mm-hmm. and then Jesus is going to compare the body in verse twenty three of the soma. Um, uh, as as more important than than food, and so in this in this in this chapter, you know, life can you know life can be used to translate all three of these words. Actually, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. one's life right, is more important right. than than what you eat. You know, mm-hmm. and so it, life or zoe can refer to both the totality of one's human existence, but in this context. I think it also relates to the idea of eternal life, of salvation. And we remember oh. that, the, that the lawyer who approached Jesus and asked him, what must I right. do to inherit eternal life? So that's, I think, I think that's, we're, we're, we're meant to hear that echo from, from okay. the question that, mm. that the lawyer asked. So we will see then that the danger posed by the abundance of possessions is that it displaces the kind of mindset and pattern of life defined by trust in God's goodness and by seeking God's kingdom. And and those are, you know, kind of two summaries of some of the main ideas about God that 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 really Jesus is trying to bring across, bring get across to people. Now Luke characteristically characteristically speaks of possessions in a unique way. He uses the participle huparkontone, uh, which is a participle of huparko, and it's a, it's a verb that has a wide range mm. of meaning. It, huparko can just mean to be, but huparko in this set means to possess. So in this, in this sense, we should read it as a, as a, as a, as a, new, as a genitive uh, neuter uh, plural uh, um, present participle of huparko. Hmm. And so it's the things that one possesses, okay. basically. Wow. And so, but that is, that is Luke's characteristic language for wealth in, in Luke's gospel. So it's an interesting kind of unique way of, of referring to them. Mm. That's, and it's interesting. And it's, it's interesting too, because it's so unique to Luke. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so this sets the stage for our parable. It does indeed. Mm -hmm. Um, And the parable concerns a rich man whose land produced abundantly in a certain year. Much of the parable contains his own self-discourse. He's talking to his soul or his self, <laughs> yes. uh, which in and of itself would have raised a red flag for the audience. Mm-hmm. This kind of soliloquy in that day and time was seen as, as sort of an excessive uh, focus on oneself mm-hmm. and, and definitely um, <laughs> prone to wandering off into dangerous territory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So his concerns are for his own wealth and comfort and not for the needs of the wider community. In a very real sense, he has neglected the importance of loving God and loving others. And again, I, this this is an echo from right. the, the 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 narrative setup for the parable of the Good Samaritan. This reminds me, and I realize I'm going way off here of Gollum, though. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, right. Gollum, he's uh, Gollum, all obsessed with in, in the Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He is so obsessed with the ring that he he neglects him, even his own welfare, yeah, even yeah, his own well-being. Yeah, and uh, I keep thinking of the mm-hmm. self dialogue that Gollum does. Mm-hmm. He becomes completely. Um, unaware of anything or anybody else around him, mm-hmm. and just you know. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah. and and in in that desire, in that discussion, then questions everything mm-hmm. going on. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know. That just struck mm-hmm. me when you said that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so the course of action that he proposes to his self seems to be a logical one. Mm-hmm. A banner crop year provides him with an abundance of wealth that will enable him enable him to retire. And, you know, one of the things we need to really hear in this is that, you know, 
his course of action is one that most of us would take. Right. If we were in the same position. Absolutely. You know, he needs a place to store the grain, however, so he decides to build new barns. And again, all of this may seem like sound business sense or sound financial planning, but his problem is his lack of attention to more important matters. And explicitly, Jesus diagnoses his problem in Luke 12, 21. So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but Mm -hmm. are not rich toward God. And so his problem is that he's more concerned about storing up riches, right. treasures for himself. Right. And, and this is, we're going we're to see in Luke's gospel, this is the path. This is a path that is completely incompatible with a path of, of following God or, mm-hmm. or being a part of God's kingdom. So um, moving on, I guess as you're, as you're describing this, you know, I, I, I think there's, I, I mean, I just, it has, it has, has more layers, right? It does. To it. It's not yeah. just, it's not just a simple statement. It like isn't. it might, like you might want to think. So right. go ahead and. There are it. several layers to this statement. And first in the parable, this man's plans for his comfortable retirement have overlooked the eventuality of his yes. own death, which in this case will come actually this very night as, mm-hmm. as you know, the warning or the, the response from God in verse 20 says. And it will not only thwart his plans, but will mean that all his wealth will go to someone else. And right. so for this reason, God addresses him as a fool mm-hmm. or an aphron, an unwise, literally an unwise person. Now, uh, you know, I've had people say to me, you know, wait a minute, didn't Jesus say, you know, you're not supposed to call anybody a fool? Right. It's actually a different word in mm. in greek it's it's the we would we would call it the sort of the 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 um the sort of the the cognate of moronic mm-hmm. um is is the greek word that jesus used so jesus uses a very different word this is a, this is more of a word that comes from the wisdom tradition in the hebrew bible mm-hmm. and, and aphron means someone who is unwise mm-hmm. someone who lacks wisdom and it's specially used in the Psalms and the Proverbs. And if you're mm-hmm. familiar with the Psalms and the Proverbs, you know that that the, the fool plays a very important role in, in the Proverbs and Psalms as the one who demonstrates a lack of wisdom toward God. And, and so this re- represents a second layer to the statement, really. And that is that... Um, you know, in the Hebrew Bible, the fool is the one who says there is no God, mm-hmm. according to Psalm 14.1. But more to the point, in Luke's context, this is a person whose life and whose choices in life denies, deny the reality of God, who rejects God's ways, as defined by the right. parable of the Good Samaritan, as love of God and love of neighbor. Right. And as a result, he lives in a way that runs counter to the deep trust in God's goodness that Jesus himself taught in the Lord's Prayer and in that whole section so on is, prayer. So this is really interesting when I think about its location in Luke's gospel, that, mm-hmm. he has, that Luke has put this after we have learned about mm-hmm. these other these other situations of, of giving of, of, of self. And so this is really... And, and he's going to develop these, these threads because all of this plays into the warnings against wealth that Jesus brings in Luke's gospel. Yeah. You know, okay. it's, wealth is something that, that, that leads you to reject God and not to depend upon God mm-hmm. in faith. Mm-hmm. Wealth is something that runs counter to um, love of God and love of neighbor. Wealth is mm-hmm. run, something that, that is contrary to this deep trust in God's goodness to provide mm-hmm. all our needs. Interesting. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the, the trust in God's goodness was meant not only to free one from greed and fear, but also to motivate a life of generosity or practicing mercy, which was the conclusion of the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, which one was a neighbor to him? The one who showed him mercy. Right, right, right. right. So finally, his preoccupation with wealth constitutes a striving, and this we'll, we'll see this in the passage for next week, because it, in a sense, in Luke's gospel, this, the passage that we're familiar with from Matthew chapter 6 about you know, not worrying about what you have to eat or what you will wear becomes an explanation uh, sort of a further elaboration mm-hmm. of Jesus' points in this particular passage. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, next week we'll see, you know, that uh, the contrast between striving to secure one's life and social status by storing up treasures for oneself, which actually engenders fear and right, absolutely. with adopting the, the, the contrast then is with the, the adopting the posture of a disciple by seeking God's kingdom and finding one's life by welcoming the kingdom and living according to its principles. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, again, um, this man's preoccupation with wealth um, 
puts him into the former category of striving mm-hmm. to secure his life and status by storing up treasures for himself. Mm. So we'll see, again, as I said, we'll see this develop further next week in the lesson that follows, and which essentially explains this particular passage mm. for this week. And, and so finally, then, we have one last, maybe one last layer. To yeah, this. a final layer in the criticism of this man, I think, is rooted in the fact that in Jesus' day, most of the population lived at the level of yeah. subsistence. And I think we can't miss that point. Uh, and that means, basically, this man's hoarding of his produce would have uh, adversely affect the whole economy of the villages around his farm. And thus, his neighbors whom he was commanded to love, mm-hmm. whom he was supposed to show compassion and mercy toward. And he's definitely not acting in accordance with the mercy that he would have practiced had he been one who hears the word of God and obeys it. And this is something that's important because we hear, we see this, you know, in Luke chapter 8, we see this in Luke eight twenty one in connection with Jesus' mother and brothers coming to him and people saying, you know, your mother and brothers have come and Jesus says, who are my mother and brothers? Mm-hmm. Anyone who hears and obeys the word of God is my mother and brother. And also in 1128, we see the same thing in connection with his um, sort of um, dealing with the Jewish religious leaders, you know, that, that hearing and hearing the word of God and obeying it, this is what it means to follow him in discipleship mm. and to and to live according to the kingdom of God. Mm. And so had he been one who hears the word of God and obeys it, then he would would have acted in a different way. He would have been more concerned about, right, well, if right. I withhold this grain, what is this going to do to the families right, around me? Right, yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, very, very interesting. I mean, that, that's really... That's a depth that you don't necessarily pick up on the first read, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we have to understand, you know, the historical uh, and economic setting of the right. day. Right, absolutely. And, and there, the, there's a, especially in Luke's gospel, they're gonna, we're going to find a lot of these kind of layers of, of how Jesus' parables and teachings apply to the economic situation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It, actually, when you think about it this and then you go back to the initial prior to the parable to the initial question Mm -hmm. the question just seems so petty Mm -hmm. you know what i mean it really just rings now up oh because after you started to realize very likely this man you know very likely the arrangement was that that this man's brother wanted him to work with him and keep keep you know the property together and he would have his share but he would not be able to take his like his proportion of the land and go work it independently and that's what he wants so this man wasn't destitute by any means i i I think we can assume that yeah i think so too i think so too yeah it it became very petty kind of it would put him under his brother's uh, I guess, authority, so to speak, because the brother would be the one who had the controlling interest. So, mm-hmm. you know, he didn't want to, he didn't want to humble right. himself. He didn't want to share. Yeah. He yeah. didn't want to do that. And so, so uh, yeah, it's more of a, it's more of a petty family dispute mm-hmm. than, than, you know, this, it's not like this guy is coming to him and saying, Hey, my brother's left me destitute. He's just, he's just wanting control. Right. Right. So uh, what, what kind of concluding remarks? Well, in, again, I think it's important to see that the parable functions in general, Jesus' context to expose the unbiblical beliefs and practices concerning wealth and possessions um, on the part of the Jewish religious leaders. You know, there are, there's so much in the Torah about economic justice that the Jewish religious leaders were consciously avoiding. They knew it was there, but they were just working around it so to speak, to let themselves off the hook because they were the ones who controlled the wealth of that day. Um, I, I think in Luke's gospel will come, and as I said before, Luke's gospel is going to come back to this theme, particularly in connection with the Jewish religious leaders, several times in this section mm-hmm. of, of the of the gospel. Now, in, in the context of Luke's community, and I would say also in our context, I think this this passage presents a warning against the danger of placing one's confidence in wealth for one's well being, for one's um, you know, to secure one's future, um, and and warnings again about the obstacle that wealth creates to finding life by loving God and others, and by aligning one's life with the kingdom of God. In mm-hmm. in Jesus' perspective, uh, in Luke's gospel, wealth is an obstacle to finding life by loving God and loving others, yeah. and by yeah. aligning one's life with the kingdom of God. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. All right, thanks. Mm-hmm. 
Hi, friends. We're back, and uh, we're going to take a look at what the Reformers had to say about this passage. And um, I think with the exception of the radical reform, we have sort of the beginning uh, beginnings of sort of the challenge that this, you know, how we deal with the challenge that this passage uh, poses to our notions of wealth and, and possessions. Yeah, I think so. And um, so, Christy, tell us about how that came about. Sure, sure. So I wanted to... Um uh, to tell you a little bit of the history of, of the time when our reformers would have been interpreting scripture, because I think it impacts how they come to the scripture and 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 some of the conclusions that they make. And this parable is especially interesting and in light of the early modern period, um, because this is a time in history when we really began to see ostentatious consumption. I was really surprised about that. But I guess when you Mm -hmm. think about the expansion of trade and things like Mm -hmm. that, that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. And these goods from overseas trade, right, we're starting to get that. And so we talked last time, 1492, but by the time you hit the mid-16th century, this is really a going thing. And by the time, of course, you hit, you know, 1600, you know, 1650, overseas trade is really bringing a, a lot of new wealth. Well, I think of Venice as you know. It was Venice was sort of the uh, mm-hmm. the, um, the the port to the e- mm-hmm. between the east and the west, sort of the conduit right. between east and west. And then, of course, we see increased trade throughout Europe, the rise of of, of early industry. Um, in terms of, um, uh, we see the major growth of the of the cotton and the wool industries. We see um, um, the rise of banking. Banking with the, this trade is really requiring moneyed economies, and it just it, it and also we see a big move to the cities. Um, mm. And this all helps create the rise of a middle class. Um, and I found that was surprising to mm-hmm. me too that there was a rise of a middle class mm-hmm. in Europe at this time. So remember. And if we go back to the medieval world, which we've talked about before, you kind of have these three groups of people, you know, those who work, those who um, pray, and those who fight. And so your nobility were rich, and then you really had poor, but you didn't really have very many in between. But now with, um, as our small kind of independent fiefs turn into much bigger states, you see how the growth of bureaucracies, um, you see, and, and uh, many of our people who are going to these, these schools, these monastic schools, which then become our first universities, um, go into civil service for the mm. state. And so the bureaucracy of statecraft. So all of a sudden you get this kind of rise in education and you also get this rise of middle class. These people are paid and they are paid pretty well. Uh, also with people moving to the city, then they su- do support roles of people in the city because of the rise of money. They're getting paid money. They have extra money to spend. And of course, as everyone's living together, they want to show off um, what they have. You know, you brought up the image of Gollum before. The image that comes to my mind is the image of the guy going around with this, you know, like this this linen collar or that mm-hmm. is too wide for his status and somebody coming along and trimming it to the yeah. right size. Right, <laughs> exactly. And, and, and this all started in, in Renaissance Italy in particular, um, which was the... Uh, um, which was really the height of it. And as people moved in, they started to show off how rich they were by building these big palaces that everyone could see. They built tower societies. The taller the tower mm. you built, the more right. impressive your family. And also, and this comes from a book by um, Carol Collier Frick named Dressing Renaissance Florence, Families, Fortunes, and Fine Clothing. She talks about how there's just... An, extreme amount of wealth that goes into clothing and Mm -hmm. what you wear makes a big big deal because that's what people see and um they would find that individual articles of clothing are actually listed in the wealth of the family Mm -hmm. which we don't do today but this was a big deal and i all that goes to goodwill right (laughs) yeah i don't have the monies in front of me but i think it's like 40 percent of their wealth is in clothing i mean it was it it was obscene Mm. it was kind of like some people with cars today you know i think cars really kind of reflect yeah this they do the Mm -hmm. the car you drive reflects on your status Mm -hmm. in society Mm -hmm. yeah 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 and so um 
all of this, again, people are moving in. We are also have an improvement in agriculture. So we see a big, big boom in population. So not only are people moving to the city for these jobs, but there's simply more people. Um, an article by David Levine, and he's a historian, uh, worked on the history of England. He's fairly well known, although this this little article is just uh, an encyclopedia piece. Um, but he claims that the population of Europe doubled between 1500 and 1750, most before 1625. Mm. So this is between 65 million to around 127.5 million. Wow. And then people move to cities, stuff becomes more accessible, um, and it just changes it just changes society. It's mm-hmm. all a different space now. And so this is part of the interpretive framework for our Reformation thinkers. Well, and you know, to, the, the, to me, the thinking that comes into mind is, I mean, they were living in a time of massive, sweeping changes. Yeah, yeah. You know, not only religious changes, cultural changes, but also economic changes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, population growth, you know, that in and of itself. Yeah. This is, this is, uh, you know, I guess I, it's, uh, you know, we think of, we think of these kinds of sweeping changes happening today, but you know, they were living in a time of just yeah. unprecedented yeah. change. And many, many yeah. historians talk about that this age is so, it's just so uncertain. And, mm-hmm. and, and we've talked about coming, the coming be- from prior the the um kind of the beginning in the in the late middle ages and then this whole early modern and, and it's theodore robb who kind of makes this foundational study on a struggle for stability in early modern yeah. europe and that really a lot of this until is is this just this really wild to i always call it wild history because there's i think so i much can empathize on. with them <laughs> right so and then of course with all of this is the rise of banking which is really interesting because this is a big shift in the church. Now, remember that it was considered ungodly to loan money at interest in mm-hmm. the medieval church. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was condemned by the church fathers as well as the early medieval councils of the church. But in the 13th century, we see a rise of interest loaning, which really allows for the rise of the Italian Renaissance. And I know you are thinking that prior to this, Jews were known for providing loans at interest. And yes, they could if it was not a Christian. Um, and they kind of had a monopoly on the banking business in a way. Um, but remember, most of our Jews are kicked out of Europe. And right. unless you live in a free imperial city, you would have trouble getting money from Jews. So there's really a problem with having ready access to money that you could invest in some type of building project. Mm-hmm. But again, all these people move into the city. You've got to find a way to house them. You've got to find a way to finance any kind of building. And so we see the rise of the bank. Of the bank. Um Famous banking families, the Medici, the Fuggers, um, and this starts in the Italian peninsula, but of course it's going to move north as well. We, mm-hmm. we talk about the Italian Renaissance, and then we talk about the Northern Renaissance on top of it. And um, it starts as a means of dealing with foreign currencies. Uh, again, moneyed, moneyed, um, in, uh, moneyed. Um, 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 commerce and um often it was just kind of said look this is the fee you're going to have for exchanging Mm -hmm. your you know whatever small dutch you come from for this one we're going to put a fee and so it kind of then evolves into a modern day money lending process um and um, when i think about banks you know i think about you know how how the dutch were so influential in uh terms of money lending by the time you know of the american revolution yep huge um, the dutch are one of the early northern groups that are very very involved with trade amsterdam is mm -hmm. a center of the trade in the north and so um Absolutely. And, and, and of course, you're wondering what theolo- theologically has shifted. And they come to understand that as long as it's not obsessive, mm-hmm. that this is actually necessary. And, and, and they start to do some evaluation between even if I lend a guy $1,000, I'm putting this in American terms, a year later, $1,000 doesn't mean the same thing. Right. And they start to realize that as they're getting ebb and flow. And of course, guess what's coming in from the new world? You all know. Gold, gold, gold bullion. Yeah. So that's changing the whole money scene as well. Yeah. Uh-huh. So this is all a backdrop for how these folks come into this scripture. And so for the Reformed tradition, this passage is more about coveting instead of attaining wealth. Mm. Um, and the Reformation era thinkers felt that Jesus in this parable um, was focusing um, um, 
the wealth towards the immediate needs of the neighbor. So gathering the wealth was okay, but it was how you used that wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the more radical, the Anabaptists, um, saw this as if you gain the wealth, then you're you're supposed to be sharing this with everybody. So mm-hmm. they they really go into the goods all goods in common. Right. Um, but these two points um, touch on one of the great debates during the Reformation: was wealth bad, and could you be a Christian if you gained wealth? Hmm. And again, Roman Catholic tradition, the vow of poverty was an important part of true piety, and we saw this in the monastic vows. Um, interestingly enough, the monasteries actually became quite rich and sometimes became corrupt from this wealth. And as people would leave their fortunes to yeah, the I monasteries. Yeah, I was thinking about that. You know, it's so, uh, we, we mentioned this recently, you know, it's ironic that, that these folks who had pals, vows of poverty, you know, they may have controlled a vast amount of resources. Yeah, they did. And what's interesting about it is then there would be these reform movements and then a new monastery would form far away from everybody else trying to uh, adhere Return to this. To the simplicity of the, of the past. Uh, exactly. Yeah. And of course, they'd get rich again and just kept <laughs> happening because right. this was one way to deal with your wealth. Give um, it to if, a monastery. If you happen to have it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, even though it was considered bad, of course, people worried about then, you know, I think we've talked about it, it's pretty na- human nature to gather stuff. Mm-hmm. And so if they happen to have it, they'd leave it, sometimes often in land, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea, um, um, this idea of, of the, uh, the poverty vows then relate back to the idea that wealth focused on worldly things, including the body, and therefore to be spiritually closer to God, you needed to take a vow of poverty. Mm-hmm. Um the Protestant tradition looked differently at wealth, seeing that wealth was not in itself evil, but how you used it. And this is consistent with what we just learned. Now, Karlstadt, remember Karlstadt, who starts with Zwingli and then ends up more in the radical camp. Um, I, but I, I like what he says about wealth. He says, quote, in short, money and possessions cannot either give or take away life. There are thousands who live quite well who carry their possessions with them, while other thousands who have many possessions live poorly and miserably. So in his view and, and other reformers, it's, it's not the goods that define a per- person's heart, but rather how uh, people respond in connection with the goods. Sure. So when the goods are more important than God, then people are missing God's call in their lives to love and delight in God's kingdom. I think, I think Luke's perspective on it is going to be that, you know, it's like easier to go for a camel to go through the eye of a mm-hmm. needle. <laughs> right, than, than, right, than almost to, impossible. Than to possess wealth and and to keep your love and delight in God's kingdom. Right, right, <laughs> and 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 what an interesting situation, right? Because well, that's almost impossible. Um, yet it seems to be human nature. Mm-hmm. So what an interesting problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in Reformed tr- tradition, this then becomes caught up into the Protestant work effort, where um, giving of your wealth for the benefit of the church and neighbor was an acceptable use of it. Um, and we see this in a commentary of August Maurelat, a Reformed pastor. And um, we also see it when Zwingli says, quote, Christ does not forbid us from storing up our little harvest, but we should not focus our minds on this so that we do not become prideful. God, and then he goes on to talk about how God hates an arrogant and ungrateful mind, whether one is poor or rich. And for Zwingli, it is what you do with your wealth that you have gained. Um, and then there's also commentary by these, um, different, um, these different commentators on the overconfidence that one has in wealth as it will somehow protect them from death. And it is therefore more important to be rich toward God than oneself. And Luther is part of this mm. group. Yeah, yeah. Deep breath, because we have a second space okay. to go. A second discussion relates specifically to verse 14, and this has to do with temporal versus priestly power. And so while there's no mention of this passage, for example, in Calvin's Institutes regarding the parable, there is in regards to this, um, mm. this specific verse. And he uses, he uses the verse to argue that the church does not have a right to judge on temporal issues. Yeah. And so, and that's a pretty foundational principle for for Calvin in terms of church polity. Oh, absolutely. And so, in Book Four, Chapter Eleven, um, Calvin talks about the Roman Catholic Church and how it has gone too far in having the church take on secular power. Now, you have to understand how he looks at this passage, which is to remove Jesus from earthly matters instead of focusing on the kingdom of heaven. Mm. So, this discussion um, had the wrong focus. Calvin believes that 
that Jesus um, involved himself in the world would have placed too much, and I mentioned this earlier, much on a Jewish image of a Messiah instead of the actual call. This was Calvin's uh, approach to this. But um, that he thought this would lead, it would just take the scripture in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a thing um, that we actually, and it was a thing in the, in this time period that we have folks assigned to sacred roles acting as secular princes. Um, and so for Calvin, this is an attack on the Roman Catholic church that claims to have this authority by the donation of Constantine. And there's a document they now date. Well, it was originally thought to have been dated at the time of Constantine. So the fourth century that all this land that is owned by the Vatican, um, and so they claimed that Constantine gave it to the church to rule. And, of course, this is a big swath of land through the middle of Italy mm-hmm. and gave them a great deal of power. Um, one of the things that happens during the, Rena- the Renaissance and Reformation with the emphasis on textual criticism, which we hit with the Bible, was also proving that this donation of Constantine was false. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so, um, because all the language does not fit. Oh, it doesn't um, fit the time. It doesn't yeah. fit the time. Mm-hmm. It's all medieval mm-hmm. language. It's medieval Greek and not... Um, right. Um, not... Uh, not Greek of, of the third. The Hellenistic era, yeah. Yeah, so. Third century. Third century. Yeah. So really, really, really fascinating stuff. I guess it would be fourth century, but fascinating stuff. And well, and you know, as, you, as you're talking about the, the uh, sacred, um, uh, those in sacred roles taking on the role of secular princes, I mean, we also had vice, the opposite, right? We had secular princes basically buying out uh, sacred oh, yeah. offices. Oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And and says Calvin, quote, to be a good bishop and a good prince is not the same man's task. <laughs> and so he then goes on to say that those who do this in a Roman Catholic church cannot possibly carry out their sacred duties. Mm. And he says later, quote, let us remember that a ministry has been laid upon us, not a lordship given. Learn that you need a hoe, not a scepter to do the prophet's work. Huh. Wow. Yeah. So I wow. think that's kind of beautiful. That actually. is an interesting <laughs> image. Yeah. You need a hoe, not a scepter. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, and it reminds me of, of Paul's image of the ministry as working the feet, God's field. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So it's a really, um, I think it's a lovely image. Um, while this is a specific criticism of the era, it does lead us towards his division of church and state today. In Calvin's world, the church and the state do work together, but the secular do- government does not does get to set the kind of faith and the basic rules for practicing the faith. Hmm. But the spiritual care and the preaching of Scripture is left to ordained clergy. And we see this, and it has us so carefully drawn out. But the kind of division of church and state we have today just isn't even in their, in their, in their minds. Right. And this kind of individual rights that go with that really mm-hmm. isn't part of how they process their space. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's one of the big complications is as we try to take our kind of modern concepts of, of individual rights and place it into the early modern context, which just isn't there yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, and well, I, even the philosophical groundwork for individual rights haven't been, hasn't been laid yet. Not, no, not at all. Um, so this particular discussion is again in the news today as churches are really involving themselves in secular government. Yeah. And now I just had mentioned that, that in our era um, that work together, um, there are a few exceptions, and that's the religious settlement under Queen Elizabeth, which allows for the Anglican Church is being the the predominant church, and then with toleration of Roman Catholics there. Also, the Edict of Nantes in France, which is after the French Wars of Religion, 1598, um, which where the Roman Catholic Church is the, if you will, the main church, but allows for toleration of the Protestants. But these are far from the overarching freedom of consciousness that comes about during the Enlightenment of this mm-hmm. kind of individual faith. Um, and I would also argue that toleration of another is not in itself religious freedom as yeah. we think about today. Sure. Um, and so um, I think it's a big issue, and I think it's also... <sighs> I think it's also when we come to this passage as modern day people versus early modern people. Mm-hmm. All right. So, Thanks, Chris. Thanks. Hi, everybody. We are back. And um, 
I think we want to explore a little bit this whole relationship between wealth and faith and what Jesus is asking us to do, because I think most of us live in a world where collecting wealth is fine as long as we are generous with our wealth. And um, um, I think um, I think we need to maybe explore, is, is that indeed what the scripture is telling us? What yeah, thanks, Christy. You know, as I as I was listening to um, you talk about uh, the reformers and and their approach, that you know, it's it's not so much the wealth that you have; it's what you do with it that is the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, it calls to my mind a passage in First Timothy chapter six, verses seventeen through nineteen. Uh, Paul, you know, this is this is the passage where Paul says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. But then later on, he he instructs Timothy and saying, "As for those who in the present age are rich, command them not to be haughty." You know, that whole right. arrogance piece, right. or set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God. Right. You know, I heard kind of a reflection of that as well who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of the life that is really life. And I think I would say, you know, in our day, most of us have kind of embraced that Protestant, that, that, that sort of resolution of the, of the, of the tension between mm-hmm. wealth and faith that we find in Jesus' teachings, especially in Luke's gospel, um, um, in the Protestant work ethic. You know, we, 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 I mean, obviously, if you're working, you're going, to, you're going to acquire wealth, and it's not the wealth that's the problem, it's what you do with it. Mm-hmm. I would want to push back a bit on that in that, um, you know, obviously Jesus is addressing a different economic situation right. at a particular time. True. And, and, but nevertheless, his, his, his language, and, you know, we haven't really even gotten into the depth of it yet, but his language is going to be fairly absolute about um, just warning that um, wealth is something that poses a threat to the ability to truly relate to God in the ways that, you know, he's, he's trying to teach, you know, this whole sense of um, praying to a God that we know that we can depend upon, that we can trust to be faithful to provide for our needs and, and, and seeing God as one who, who cares for our needs and, and delights mm-hmm. in, in ensuring that our needs are met, uh, aligning our lives with the kingdom of God, um, practicing love for God, which leads to love for right, neighbor, which right. means the practice of mercy, you know, these but kinds it, of things. But does it necessi- necessi- necessitate that you are poor? And I think, I think what I hear in there, because, for example, Jesus is saying, says that the poor will always be with us. Mm-hmm. So what, is there a, is there a middle class? And I think what they see as a middle class is not rich, mm-hmm. but they're not poor. Right. I mean, right. if you have poor and you can't get enough to eat, and all you can think about is where my next meal's from, can right. you really be a good steward of God? Right. I don't know if you can, yeah. because I don't know if your mind can ever take you off of, I just have to eat and I can do whatever I have to do to survive that. So right. I, I'm wondering, I guess in my mind is, does the rise of a middle class change the Right. change the definition right. from where Jesus is at in this time. Well, and that's that's a good question. I mean, you know, because rich and poor have relative meanings in the world. You know, mm-hmm. when we go to many countries in the world, most of us who are just basically middle-class people in this country are are wealthy. Are insanely well, that's wealthy. That's true, right? Compared to most of compared most to people. the rest of the world, yeah, right? I'm, when I lived in Germany, um, we we took a trip to Eastern Europe to bring some aid to some some friends in Romania and Hungary. And when I was in Budapest, I wanted to buy, the, the Hungarians have these beautifully hand-embroidered linen, white linen tablecloths. And so I wanted to buy something really nice for my wife for, you know, being willing to go on this great adventure with me with two small boys, right? Mm-hmm. We had a two-year-old and a newborn when we went over there. And so I bought a tablecloth that was, it was like $400 in 1990, which was significant, but, you know, it wasn't anywhere near monthly, right. monthly, you know, a monthly, what we lived on a month right. in, in this, in this country, but it was a monthly wage. It was equivalent to the monthly wage for a computer engineer in Hungary mm-hmm. at that time. Right. 
And, you know, I, I, I really found well, cause some of our go, some of our hosts in, in Budapest were taking me around and, and took me to a shop and, and, you know, right. I picked out the most expensive thing in the shop basically, right. because I wanted to do something really nice for my wife. And, I realized later that I kind of embarrassed them because I bought this just oh. really extravagant yeah. tablecloth, you know, that they knew they never would have even dreamed of being able to right, afford. Right. I don't think they held it. I don't think they held it against me or anything, but I just, I felt really embarrassed by that yeah. fact. Well, you know? yeah. And we've, we've done that, right. I've, I've done that as well. I did, I did in the Czech Republic. I bought this gorgeous, um, uh, lead crystal bowl for $20, which, you know, would have been worth so much more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and so I think, I think, you know, the, the problem is it's sort of like the frog in the teapot, you know, we get used to our particular way of looking at things mm-hmm. and we think everything's fine right. and we don't necessarily, it, it's, it becomes harder for us to see right. how our possessions, how we may cling to our possessions, how we may yeah. be attached to our I possessions, agree. how we may derive a sense of status from our possessions. Uh, yeah. You know, you mentioned the cars, you know, I, I drive around Lincoln, Nebraska, and I see cars that are a hundred thousand dollars and more. And I'm, I'm, you know, I look at them and I'm like, Jeez, you know, right. because I certainly can't afford to drive a right, car that, right. that expensive. And, right. and you know, you know, I mean, these days as well, the size and the location of one's right. house can be a, an, an indicator of social status. And I mean, we see people devoting a lot of their effort to to paying off their true. their loans for these right. expensive homes and cars. But. We have, so I've thought about this because people think, well, I work hard so I can pay for all these things, so I can do all these things, so I can have all this. And there's, there's kind of a space at, at what point, at what point, I mean, does that stop? Do we have to have a new measure? Do mm-hmm. we have to new measure of wealth? And I talked with a student I had several years ago who said, well, what about, what about the happiness measure, mm-hmm. you know, is working all this hard to gain all this stuff really a measure of your happiness and right. contentment. And so there's been studies out there. What if we stop basing it on wealth? And what if we start basing it on, on, on happiness and contentment? And Surely. I know some of these young people, I've got, I've got young adults, 19 and 22. I know that they are like, I don't want stuff. I want to live in a little house, but I want to have time. I want to do things. Mm-hmm. So there's starting to be new measures yeah. of what brings happiness yeah. and not necessarily based on how big your house is, how fancy your car right. is in the Renaissance, what, how, how luxurious how your clothing is. your clothes are. Yeah. Right. You know, how many jewels can I put on? Yeah. And so it is an interesting thing to think about. Um, I think, <laughs> I think turning Jesus's statement upside down, the poor will always be with us. I think the rich will always be with us too. Yeah. I think that's true. <laughs> I, I, I mean, Unless you go into a community of goods where everyone holds goods in the same. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a communist view. And there's problems with that, too. The experiments mm-hmm. have gone very poorly because yeah. you There's have, always a hierarchy. Yeah. There, you always it's a like hierarchy. George Orwell's Animal Farm. You know, there's always, yeah. <laughs> there's always someone who emerges as the hierarchy. Uh, exactly. So mm-hmm. it, it's... It's... it's, it's, it's it, and it makes this an interesting thing. So it makes me, it makes me personally go back to when your whole attention becomes wealth and when you can't part with it and mm-hmm. um, th- that your attention is there instead of on, on others, instead of on God's kingdom. So I'm caring for the world. I think your attention is, and, and, and well, guilty, I think, you know, I do it myself, right? Well, and I think part of the problem is we fear scarcity, you know, and oh, so, I mean, you know, I, I'm at the age where I'm thinking about retirement. I'm not going to retire anytime soon, but, it, you know, it's on the horizon. And, you know, we fear scarcity. Of course we and, do. And, and, you know, we, you know, in our world, we think, you know, we, we, we are programmed to think we have to plan for retirement on our own, which to some extent, that's just simply being financially responsible, mm-hmm. right? But at the same time, you know, we put all this energy and effort into planning for our retirement on our own that I think sometimes we get caught up in all the mechanics of that and we can really forget, wait, you know, we're called to relate to a God who loves us as a father, who, who knows our needs, 
who cares about our needs, right. who delights in seeing to our well-being. Right. That is our ultimate dependence right. for all of life. Right. And and that is that is where you know I, to me that's where the rubber hits the wheel or the rubber meets the road with with all of this is that you know yes finding contentment in what we have uh, you know striving for for or, or looking for happiness in life yes but we we I mean it's all rooted in in. This kind of faith that Jesus is trying to to teach us um, is a part of discipleship, and and you know encouraging us to to align our lives with God's kingdom and what God is doing in mm-hmm. this world to to live into the, the sense that God loves us and to live out of that by being merciful and compassionate and generous with yeah. our, with the people around us. Yeah. And, and you know, when we, when we get into that scarcity mode, we don't, we're not compassionate. Right. Well, we're not generous. True. No, you are right. We get very protective of our things. Yeah. And, um, it's, it's really, really interesting. I, I've how, um, and I don't, I don't know why this happens often, but it's happened both with my parents and my in-laws where as they, they get into that scarcity thinking and they have some dementia going on mm-hmm. with it. And it's such a hard thing to watch because you watch that they just get, well, she's trying to take the money from me. They're trying to take this from me. And all of a sudden it's... Lots of fear. Lots of fear. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an extreme example of, of, of folks that have dementia. But on the other hand, I think that plays in, that fear plays in all of us. I th- it does. I think... Often that's what goes on today um, instead of uh, when we get into these big conflicts. Instead yeah. of working together for a better community, we're scared of what each, each side's going to pull away from us. Well, and, and, you know, I will observe, as, as Marcus Borg observed once, you know, the opposite of faith is not, is not doubt, the opposite of faith is fear, fear. in the Bible. Yes, it is. And so, yeah. you know, again, you know, Jesus is, is we're going to see next week, Jesus is trying to encourage an attitude of, of finding our life in the kingdom of God and seeking the kingdom of God and not striving for an abundance of possessions um, because he knows that when we worry about what we eat or what we wear, right. we, we are prone to fear. Yeah. And, and that right. fear yeah. is an impediment to faith. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, it's, 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 I think this is a perennial challenge. And so this is, you know, I'm going to oh, say this definitely. again. I'm going to yeah. say this again as we, as we take our, our journey through uh, this part of Luke's gospel. And that is that, you know, there's some of these statements we're going to run into that they're just so absolute on Jesus' lips that I think we just have to let the challenge stand and and leave the tension in the biblical text so that you know we can let it pull us into deeper discipleship and and, and I, I like that i like that. i think that's very um a, i i think it's a very wonderful way to to process this um and i think it really comes down to our human nature too yeah, sure. versus um, our call on our lives by god and i think that's I think it's brilliant. Yeah. Well, and, you know, we live in a time where most people believe that one's life does consist in the abundance of possessions. Oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah, we still do. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Most yep. people believe we that one's that life space. does consist in the abundance of possessions. Well, and so we have to hear Jesus, you know, challenging that. One's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions mm-hmm. and what that means for our faith in God. <laughs> it reminds me of... Um, I watch Alone. I love Alone. Have you watched Alone? I haven't. It's the they send ten people out to survive for um, in the wilderness, usually somewhere very far north, where it gets very cold on mm-hmm. them and, and starts to be you know sub zero temperatures, and um, they're all they just survive with a handful of things, and they have to live off the land. And uh, but if you win, you get five hundred thousand dollars. Oh my! And so what's really interesting about it is those folks that go out because they just it, it's between them and nature and their experience. They always have a better chance of winning mm-hmm. than the guy who's out there that says just day one, I have to win this. They always go home. They just want because, it. They're just out there for right, the money. Because yeah. it's too hard. Yeah. And um, too, too hard to live at that subsistence level. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it does remind me of this a little bit of, 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 of where your heart is, um, of, 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 of where your focus is. Well, and I think I think the contentment is the key. Is that you know I think what I see what I see in the New Testament especially is is 
you know, there is some criticism of the wealthy, but it, it seems to be more of a sense of, you know, sort of paraphrasing Paul's uh, statement about whether you're married or not. You know, Paul says, be content where you are, you know, in, 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 in your yeah, calling. Yeah, be content yeah. where you are in your calling. Be content with, and I think we can apply that to, to this as well. If you can be content with what you have yeah. and, and really put your faith in, in this this God that Jesus is trying to portray for us, as who is a loving Father who right. ca- who knows our needs, who cares for our needs, who delights in right. seeing to the, that we have all good things, you know, um, uh, I think that makes the all the difference in the world yeah, for us. Me too. Yeah. Me too. Thanks, okay. Christy. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.